one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 134. Third Time's the Charm. After being appointed senior commander of the Empire's armed forces, Nicephorus Phocas returned to the Eastern Front and began reorganizing the troops at his disposal. He seems to have spent the entire summer of 955 drilling his soldiers and putting them through the maneuvers that we heard about last episode. Practice was vital in creating a force which could defeat the armies of Sefadola. He also recruited more men. Contemporary tactics are important, but superior numbers have a timeless quality. The emperor had been persuaded to loosen the purse strings, and a stream of mercenaries made their way to Cappadocia to join up with the domestic. As you may remember from two episodes ago, Saif had refortified his frontier bases, and this gave him the confidence to launch multiple attacks in the spring of 956. However, Nicephorus's most eager lieutenant was also on the move. John Zimiskis had been promoted by his uncle to become Stratikos of Mesopotamia. As you can see on the map, this meant he controlled the headwaters of the Euphrates, rather than actually being stationed in Iraq. John was earning a reputation for bold, almost reckless aggression as a commander. He raided south from the mountains down toward the city of Amida. Saif was already heading towards Melatine when news of John's movements reached him. The emir decided to target John's home base now that he knew it would be lightly defended. He arrived in the area of Asamosata twelve days later. and This is the area east of Melatine, and Saif's men ravaged it as they went. They sacked the regional capital of Harput and continued their progress. By now... Zimis Keys was told what was happening. He turned his raiding party around and marched north again. Following the dictates of on skirmishing, John split his men up and occupied the mountain passes, which the enemy were most likely to use on their journey home. Having suffered before from this tactic, Safe scouted the area well as his forces moved south. 
He avoided the bulk of John's troops by pushing further east. However, the longer he was forced to march, the more dicey the supply situation became. His soldiers had eaten well in the fertile plains east of Melitene, but now they were back in the mountains, and their rations would eventually run out. To the emir's frustration, as he approached the next pass, he found that John himself had garrisoned it. Not wanting to delay further, and clearly outnumbering the Romans, Safe ordered his men to drive Zimis Keys out of the defile. What followed was an extremely bloody battle. In the narrow confines of the pass, bodies piled up quickly, and with both sides a long way from home, things became desperate. There was also heavy rain, which made everyone's footing more perilous. In the end, the greater numbers of Saif's army told. According to an Arab source, 4,000 Romans were killed and the rest retreated. John himself was struck several times, but his chainmail kept him alive. The Stratikos escaped with his life, but his thirst for a fight was established. Though Saif made it back to Amida, to a hero's welcome, the remainder of his forces did not. His cousin was trying to rebuild a fort not far from Adata, but the Romans had been tipped off. Leo Phocas led his troops to the spot and fell on the workforce. In the chaos, the Hamdanid commander was captured and dispatched to Constantinople. Saif decided to maintain the pressure on Byzantium, despite this setback, so in September he marched back to the region of Melitene, looking to capture some of the forts which supported it. The Byzantine response was highly coordinated and dramatic. In the pages of On Skirmishing, it says this, when you are at a loss about how to injure the enemy with stratagems and ambushes because they are very cautious and guard themselves carefully, march quickly against their lands. Stay there a while, burning, destroying, besieging fortified towns. When the enemy hear of this, they will force their leader to get back to defend their own country. Nicephorus commissioned those words and this was an occasion when he put them into practice. He ordered the Kiviriotone fleet to sail to Tarsus and assault its harbour. It had been many years since the Romans had attacked Cilicia, and they seemed to have achieved surprise. The Tarsiate fleet were annihilated, and the Byzantine marines were able to land and burn the suburb of the city around the harbour. When the news reached Saif's forces, it had the desired effect. The soldiers from Tarsus immediately abandoned Saif's cause and raced home. With his invading force weakened, Saif too had to retreat. But after he did, the Romans launched a surprise attack to his east aimed at Martyropolis. This time, Saif returned home with cries for help ringing in his ears from every direction. That year's campaigning had been a frightening demonstration of Roman power. They had more men and could now strike in multiple directions at once. 
back in Constantinople, the emperor was immediately rewarded for his promotion of Nicephorus' focus and decided to celebrate a triumph. Though there had been plenty of success on the Eastern Front in the last seven years, nothing had been tangible enough to compensate for the failure of the Cretan expedition. Here was an opportunity for the Porphyrogenitos to finally show off his military credentials. Despite being nowhere near the action, it was to be the emperor himself who would receive the starring role in the procession. As the booty and prisoners made their way down the Messi, they reached the Forum of Constantine, where the Vasilefs would meet them. Seif's cousin was brought before him, and Constantine placed his foot on the man's neck. The people acclaimed the emperor as the barbarians he'd ritually trampled were led away. The following year, 957, Nicephorus himself was ready to fight. He assembled a large army and marched straight to Adata, one of Saif's border fortresses, and placed it under siege. Arab troops attempting to relieve the city were easily driven off, and they reported that the Romans were marching with a wide variety of mercenary troops, Armenians, Rus, Bulgars, Slavs, Magyars, and men from the Caucasus were all said to be present, with translators needed everywhere to keep them in step with Nicephorus's orders. The city was swiftly taken, and the domestic had the walls that Saif had rebuilt just three years earlier pulled down. Nicephorus would have occupied the city if he'd felt he could hold it, but his position wasn't quite strong enough yet so he ordered the population to leave and made the site as difficult for safe to restore as possible. The Hamdanid emir was gathering an army to drive him off, but showing the reach of his cash reserves, Nicephorus made secret contact with Saif's Turkish troops and offered them significant inducement to betray their master. As they pondered their options, the emir got wind of this potential treachery. He ordered his loyal troops to surround the Turkish barracks and massacre them. Furious at this double blow to his plans, Saif marched back to Aleppo and executed the Byzantine prisoners in his care. Warren Treadgold speculates that this was the moment when Saif realized that, barring outside intervention, he was going to lose this war. In early 958, news began filtering down through the Balkans that a Magyar raiding party was crossing Bulgaria and heading for Thrace. Nicephorus dispatched his brother to take command of the situation. Leo called up soldiers from western Anatolia and crossed over to Thrace as the steppe riders began sacking Roman villages. In a clear demonstration of the improved morale and competence of Byzantine forces, Leo's troops smashed the Magyars and drove them back the way they'd come. In the east, John Zimiskis was off the leash again and led a major raid into Mesopotamia. He reached the old Roman city of Dara and sacked it, as Saif sent a relief army under his best general. 
John, using some of the new heavy cavalry, met Safe's men in pitched battle and crushed them. According to one source, about 5,000 enemy troops were killed in the rout, and another couple of thousand were captured. Safe's absence from this battle may have been due to ill health. He'd begun to suffer from a neurological condition that would plague him for the rest of his days. Meanwhile, Constantine had sent the eunuch Basil Le Capinos to the eastern front with more troops. Perhaps he was there to keep an eye on the Focas family. The emperor had become conscious of the need to blend the success of the magnates into that of his own regime. Hence the triumph where he took pride of place. Now he held a public launch for these reinforcements, sending Basil off with great ceremony and promises that the whole of Romania was praying for his success. Basil, who, as you may remember, had a fondness for wealth, was only too pleased with this opportunity. He led his troops all the way to Samosata, which was now exposed to Roman attack thanks to the destruction of neighbouring Adata, and these fresh troops linked up with those under John's command as Zimisces returned victorious. Together they besieged the city, which surrendered quickly. The defenders were losing faith in safe, and again the walls, only recently fortified, were toppled. The sword of the dynasty did manage to campaign in person and attempt to relieve the city, but he was badly beaten by the large combined Roman force. Not only did their mass cavalry break his lines, but they captured many of his officers and dispatched them in chains to Constantinople. John and Basil were granted a joint triumph that autumn to celebrate another remarkable victory for the regime. Saif's frontier defences were in tatters. The following year, 959, Nicephorus's men drove straight through the gap they'd opened up and raided into Syria. They reached the city of Cyrus, or Kyrus, you can see it on the map, on the road to Aleppo, and sacked it. While flanking attacks in both Cilicia and Mesopotamia made it impossible for Saif to adequately defend his realm. This string of victories had re-secured the frontiers and made it unlikely that Saif could threaten Melitene. As a result, the emperor began to dream again of Crete. The crippling of the fleet of Tarsus would make any such expedition more manageable, and with his new war machine proving unstoppable, perhaps it was time to divert its aggression south and complete the long-standing Macedonian project. Constantine entrusted the plans to one of his senior ministers, Joseph Bringus, who began building more ships in anticipation of a much larger armada than was used a decade earlier. Another truce was agreed with the Fatimid rulers of Africa and Sicily to secure the western seas. Sadly, though, the Porphyrogenitos would not live to see Crete brought back into the fold. Constantine had always been sickly. 
His frequent ill health had perhaps convinced Romanus Le Capinos not to assassinate him. But despite these symptoms, the emperor had never really been close to death's door until now. In November 959, Constantine took to his bed and slipped away. He was 54 years old and had actually ruled the Roman Empire for 15 of them. Constantine was a good emperor, and as I discussed in detail during the fundraising episode, he is up there with Justinian in terms of influence on our perception of Byzantium. He has become, in many ways, the prototypical Middle Byzantine ruler, the man who knew how to play the part of Vasilevs better than anyone. He was the still-smiling solidity of the Roman world, the sun around which the court orbited. Men came before him to collect their gold and offices before returning to their posts to keep his realm functioning. There is something so very Byzantine about his life story. He was kept alive because of the public's desire for continuity, but they weren't actually willing to storm the palace on his behalf. They were happy just to see him living under house arrest while a competent regime ran the show. Yet somehow he ended up inheriting the throne anyway, and dedicating to print his view of imperial life. It's interesting to think that had the Regency Council survived, I might now be saying that Constantine had ruled for 40 years, making him the longest reigning emperor in history. It's fascinating to ponder how he might have fared. Would he have been so secure as to leave a John Corcuas on the frontier for 20 uninterrupted years? Or would he have felt threatened by such an impressive figure? Would he have ever left the palace and campaigned in person? Would his instinct for peace have led Byzantium down a different path? What makes these thoughts more relevant is that Constantine's grandson, Basil, will end up in this very situation. He will emerge as a young man to rule in his own right after a childhood spent under the thumb of usurpers. And he will end up ruling for over 40 years where he will struggle often with his magnate generals in a way that Constantine never had to. The Porphyrogenitos was succeeded by his own born-in-the-purple son, Romanus II. However, we will introduce him properly next week. Today, we will continue with the narrative of the Cretan expedition. The Emperor's death did not kill off plans for another armada. We can assume that Romanus had been kept in the loop by his father, and he was happy to continue the project. He delegated the details to his eunuch minister, Joseph Bringus. Lessons had been learned from the debacle of 949. Many more men and ships would be needed if this mission was going to succeed. Bringus also insisted that no palace creature be given command of the expedition. Apparently, Basil Le Capinos was lobbying for the role. No, there really was only one choice, and that was Nicephorus Focus. The domestic rode to a port just south of Ephesus 
in spring 960 to oversee the final preparations. Unlike the previous two attempts, we don't have any documents relating to this armada, but modern guesswork suggests it was three times the size of Constantine's 949 effort. This probably meant between three and four hundred ships set sail, carrying between twenty and forty thousand men, though that includes oarsmen as well as soldiers. The cream of the Tachmata and the theme armies were on board, and we know this because, as we'll discuss next week, Seif Adola was able to ride unopposed into Anatolia in their absence. The Magyars also returned to Thrace in that time, suggesting Western troops may have gone too. This was a major undertaking. Had it ended in disaster, it could have drastically changed the balance of power in the east and undermined the Macedonian dynasty. This was well understood in official circles, and Romanus faced a coup attempt while the fleet was away. The expedition set off in summer, and landed safely on the island on the 13th of July. Nicephorus knew that getting his men safely onto the beach was crucial to the whole campaign, so he had troop transports land first, dropping ramps onto the sand so that his cavalry, mounted and armed, could ride straight up onto dry land and drive off any resistance they met. The few Arab troops who appeared were easily dealt with, and the Romans were able to safely make camp. The fleet found a secure harbour nearby and began to patrol the coasts as best they could. Nicephorus moved on Chandax, the Arab capital. His men began assaulting the civilian population who lived outside the walls. The aim was to drive them inside the city, heaping a further burden on its resources. It seems that the Roman army was too large to be opposed directly, so the main Arab force remained inside the city, preparing for a siege. However, Crete is a large island, with at least three major mountains, and Nicephorus knew that enemy garrisons still lurked in the countryside. He warned his foraging parties to be vigilant, and had to have defences facing both ways as he established a perimeter around the city. Chandax had three walls surrounding it. The fourth side faced the sea, and it had a large moat round the whole circuit. The walls looked thick, though they were not made of solid stone. Parts of them seemed to have been tightly packed earth held together with wooden beams, but it's hard to know exactly. Nicephorus certainly hoped that he could storm the city and end things quickly. The longer he stayed the harder it would become to supply his men. He'd brought some siege weapons with him, but his initial assaults completely failed. The walls held firm, and the defenders fired arrows, dropped stones, and threw axes at the Romans. Suffering a steady stream of casualties, Focus pulled back. His foraging parties made contact with Arab troops elsewhere on the island, and fought a series of skirmishes with them. In an attempt to break the morale of the defenders, Nicephorus ordered the severed heads of fallen Arabs to be catapulted into the city. 
However, the Saracens stood firm, and after further attacks failed, Nicephorus grudgingly settled in to try and starve the city into submission. He had his men build a palisade all the way around the city and scoured the countryside for supplies to ensure that he could make it through winter. As luck would have it, it was a very cold winter. Reminding some of the famous frosts during the reign of Romanus Le Capinos. All across Anatolia, harvests failed and famine prevailed. Nicephorus was forced to ration his men carefully and work hard on maintaining morale as they shivered in their tents throughout the harshest months. As you know, sailing in winter is hazardous, and so it was difficult to get supplies from Anatolia to the besieging army. The Arabs struggled too, but they never lost their access to the sea and were able to occasionally bring in food from Syria or Egypt. Back in Constantinople, a conspiracy began to form against the emperor. It was just some ambitious office holders who sensed that the regime could be toppled if the siege failed. And this really could have been a breaking point, but it wasn't. The plot was foiled, and Joseph Bringus worked hard to gather supplies from unaffected regions and ship them to the army in spring 861. Nicephorus had spent the winter working on the siege equipment he needed to break through Chandax's walls. In early March, as soon as the weather would allow, his army resumed their attack. The siege engines pelted the walls to keep the defenders occupied, while a detachment of sappers got down into the moat and dug under a section of the walls. They put wooden supports in place to keep the edifice secure, and then once they were ready, they set fire to the struts, and a whole section of the walls collapsed. After the dust had settled, both sides raced forward into the breach. The Romans got the better of the intense fighting, and once they'd broken through the Arab line into the city, the slaughter began. This was an old-fashioned sacking, with all the horrors that that entailed. Nicephorus began racing around the streets, trying to restore some order. The domestic was a very religious man, and though he oversaw much bloodshed in his life, he did not approve of the merciless behaviour of his men, who, after eight months camped outside the walls, were more than ready to let their fury fly. His retainers did manage to find the emir and his son and escort them away from the carnage. Once the army had been brought back under control, Nicephorus destroyed other sections of the walls to make sure the city couldn't be reoccupied. He then established a fortified camp from which the island could be administered until officials and settlers arrived. He divided the loot and prisoners up, setting aside a portion for the state and another batch for his own triumph. The rest was split amongst his troops, and this was an amazing payday for all involved. 
and I don't suppose they stopped to think that much of the assembled wealth had once belonged to fellow Romans. No, the headline for the victors was simply that Crete was once again part of the empire, 140 years after it had been occupied. The remaining Arabs of the island were offered the usual choices. Convert, leave, or be enslaved. Their century and a half on the island has left very little trace, probably because of Byzantine efforts to re-Christianize the landscape. One source claims that Nicephorus ordered all the mosques destroyed. The majority of the island's population were still of native stock, but of course some had converted to Islam, while others had had their Christianity corrupted by contact with the Arabs. That was the opinion of Roman clerics returning to the island anyway. It's difficult to know if that's mere rhetoric to support the importance of their work, or if cross-cultural pollination had begun to produce a new spirituality. Whatever the truth, within a generation or two, the island seems to have been smoothly reintegrated into the administrative and cultural life of Romania. The surrounding islands were re-inhabited, too, now that they were free from the terror of sudden attack. Sailing home that summer, Nicephorus, despite his stern countenance, must have been smiling inside. He had been given a very tough task, and he'd succeeded. The century and a half of failure to retake the island made his achievement shine ever brighter by comparison. Another triumph was held, though again the glory was directed at the emperor, Nicephorus was allowed to march around the Hippodrome, though, receiving cheers from the crowds, and naturally many realised who was actually responsible for this success. The sheer amount of treasure on display astounded the citizenry. Nicephorus now stood as the most impressive figure in Roman public life since Heraclius. Poor John Corcuas worked in relative obscurity for two decades. The men and women of the Messi didn't really know where Melitine was or what its true significance portended. But Crete? Everyone knew about Crete. And many had some personal connection to someone who'd suffered from Arab piracy. Now the great general Nicephorus had wiped them out. You'd have to go all the way back to Maurice or Belisarius to find an actual conquering hero. And that's what Nicephorus seemed like on that day. A deacon called Theodosius wrote a panegyric about the recapture of Crete, and in it he called Nicephorus the Avenger of Rome. The emir and his son were paraded before the people, but were then given a comfortable new life as Roman citizens. And for Nicephorus, it was back to the Eastern Front to deal with Sefadola, 
I'll tell you all about what the Sword of the Dynasty was up to during the siege next week. For now, though, savvy observers in the capital looked at Nicephorus in a new light. Of course, generals were always a potential source of danger for the palace, but usually the people of the capital stood against these outsiders. Now officials looked on as the crowds indulged in hero worship for the first time in centuries. Was the ultimately capable Nicephorus now a threat to the throne? Pah! Not as long as Romanus II is alive and well. He's only a young man. I don't think we have anything to worry about. <laughs> Let's hope he doesn't die suddenly, leaving another unstable regency like the one that saw Romanus Le Capinos come to power. <laughs> Next time on the History of Byzantium. Yep. We close today with an appeal for help. Listener A.N. has rather a tragic story, and it's connected to contemporary events in Turkey. He is hoping to further his studies of Byzantium, and asks that you just take a moment to check out his story and consider donating. I've put links up on social media and the website. Please have a look. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 